Hey everyone, Eric here. We're really excited about a new AI show from Turpentine called Autopilot, hosted by Will Summerlin. This podcast explores the adoption and rollout of AI in the industries that drive the economy and the dynamic tech founders bringing rapid scalable change to slow moving industries. From law to hardware to aviation, Will interviews founders backed by Benchmark, Greylock, YC, and more to learn how they're automating at the frontiers in entrenched industries. Click on the link in the description to subscribe to Autopilot. Your data is messy. It has gaps in it. I can't create new additional examples. It's too expensive or there's no way to go back to it. So we really focused our efforts on, first and foremost, helping you build better data. That's been the kind of the, the guiding light. That's what we're really um, aiming for. You know, no LLM today can generate a 100,000 or a million row data set. So the first purpose of the agent was interpreting that user query that's coming in and then figuring out how to divide it up into a set of smaller problems that the LM can work on one problem at a time. The promise of a really lightweight model, really fast model, like shows the power that you can have of taking a, a domain specific data set you have or task and doing something meaningful without having to do something at the GPT-4 scale. Hello, and welcome to The Cognitive Revolution, where we interview visionary researchers, entrepreneurs, and builders working on the frontier of artificial intelligence. Each week, we'll explore their revolutionary ideas, and together, we'll build a picture of how AI technology will transform work, life, and society in the coming years. I'm Nathan LeBenz, joined by my co-host, Eric Torenberg. Hello, and welcome back to The Cognitive Revolution. Today, my guest is Alex Watson, founder and chief product officer at Gretel AI, the synthetic data platform for developers. Synthetic data is a fascinating topic. Since the early days of deep learning, it's been well known that training computer vision models on a mix of original and programmatically altered and degraded images ultimately improves model performance. It seems that learning the concepts through the noise boosts robustness to the random unseen oddities that models inevitably encounter in the wild. And more recently, dozens, maybe even hundreds of papers have explored how LLM-generated data can be used to improve training sets and ultimately model performance on a wide range of problems. Yet at the same time, some research results and many observers of the evolution of the internet in general have cast doubt on just how much synthetic data the system can absorb before models begin to lose touch with their real-world origins or otherwise degrade. With these questions in mind, I reached out to Alex, who's been building a business on synthetic tabular data generation since 2020, and who proved to be an amazing guide to this domain. While synthetic data might sound like a niche topic, I think this conversation will be of general interest. We started with a discussion of why we need synthetic data, how Gretel has trained specialist models to maintain realism while also preserving privacy in creating it, and how we can be confident that we can trust this data for analysis testing, and yes, AI model training. Along the way, we also explored the trade-offs between statistical realism and social manners, the impact of LLMs on Gretel's business, and the new pre-trained tabular LLM that they've recently introduced to help create synthetic data on a zero-shot basis for a wide range of data types and scenarios. We even took a detour into AI regulation in the wake of the recent Biden White House executive order and the UK AI Safety Summit. This episode is a great example of why I love making this show. I learned a ton in the, in the preparation and had a lot of fun with the conversation, and I think you will too. If so, I always appreciate it when listeners share the show with their friends. And of course, we invite your feedback via our email at tcr at or via your favorite social network. 
For now, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Alex Watson of synthetic data company, Gretel AI. Alex Watson, welcome to the Cognitive Revolution. Appreciate it. Thanks, Nathan. Excited to be here. Uh, yeah, this is going to be great. So you are the founder and now chief product officer at this company, Gretel AI. I'd love to hear how you come up with that name, by the way. Uh, but what you guys do is synthetic data. And, you know, I'm just so interested to learn so much more about it. Uh, I've been, it's been really kind of eye-opening to explore the product a little bit. Uh, you do some of the best live product demos that I've seen. Your, your recent 12-minute uh, YouTube short I thought was like really good. I appreciate that. Thanks. I think, yeah, I think this is going to be a ton of fun. So tell me, where did Gretel come from? Give me just a quick backstory, and then let's talk about like why do we need synthetic data? The original vision for Gretel was around a better way to make data that we can't make accessible accessible. And it's evolved quite a bit. Like synthetic data has so much more kind of capabilities and promises that we've discovered over the past um, about three years of running our business. Um, but it was a reference to the, like, the digital breadcrumbs that we leave behind and really an effort from our company with using synthetic data to make enable data sharing at a scale that hasn't been possible before. Imagine hospitals sharing medical records, uh, research institutions, fin financial companies sharing data in a way that doesn't compromise consumer privacy. And that's really where we started. So you'll see that those like, you know, as we kind of go through the technology we build and talk about differentially private training and things like that, you'll see some of that come through in our product. You know, we've expanded that, that vision, that scope quite a bit, but we really started around privacy and around the idea of protecting individual privacy, but enabling learning and data sharing at scale. Yeah, it's awesome. So the big two value drivers today, obviously you kind of are you know, starting the founding premise is privacy. And now there's this kind of, you know, massive takeoff in AI and, you know, so many people training stuff and trying to figure it out. And so the other big use case that we're seeing is improving the data that people are feeding into their training processes. So tell us a little bit about that one as well. Yeah, maybe it, I'll maybe start with the history of how it happened. And it actually happened like incredibly early in our company. So for a brief history, uh, prior to Gretel, I was a uh, co-founder of a, a startup, security startup um, called Harvest AI. Um, we built products that help customers like scan and detect important data in the cloud. We ended up getting acquired by AWS in 2016. We're going out for a Series A raise and uh, got approached around uh, launching that service as an AWS service. So I was a GM there for about four years uh, for Amazon Macy, which people used to scan AWS cloud for important data and saw that even the biggest, most, you know, cloud native, incredible data companies struggled with enabling internal access to data, right? So Pinterest of the world, the Airbnbs of the world and things like that. So you saw what a problem this was at scale and also the power of when you can make data accessible, like. At AWS, we had a, at the time, 500-person compliance team that could um, work wonders for making data accessible. So we started out with that privacy thing. And our first um, open source example we released in um, uh, 2020, right, actually, uh, I think about a week before the pandemic hit. And uh, open source ability to, uh, essentially, we used a language model. Uh, this is 2020, so we weren't using transformers at the time. We were using an LSTM uh, where we had um, started to partner with the Google TensorFlow team around technology called DPSGD, which is, uh, enables you to uh, train models with differential privacy so you can make sure they won't memorize secrets. But one of the early features that we had was the ability, just like we all do today, to prompt the machine learning model and ask it to create something new. So our first real experiment was saying, can a language model like an LSTM, um, instead of learning a language and text, can it learn to recreate the distributions inside of a data set? So we really started focusing on tabular data around uh, 2020. 
Um, and that can be mixed uh, numeric, categorical, text, data, anything in between. And then we had the ability to prompt the model where you could give it a subset of those features, right? Uh, like given uh, um, a zip code and a ethnicity and a, a date generate the rest of this record for me very early in our journey. I think the first time we had this was working with some researchers at UCI, so University of California, Irvine. And they were doing, uh, they were working with a rare disease uh, data set um, that was highly imbalanced, right? So you have like thousands of patients, but the only people inside that data set that had the really rare disease were in the, the tens to twenties. So the question was, can we address some of the representation bias here, first of all? So like essentially boost that minority class. And if we do that, can we improve the detection for this disease? So essentially the idea is using synthetic data to create additional kind of labeled examples when they weren't able to go back and recreate their experiment or their, their collection. Um, and can that data set be used to improve downstream machine learning training? So the idea is it introduces new examples that weren't in the training data and that'll help the machine learning model. And we had a lot of success there. And since that point, I think we've seen more and more focus and you know, fast forwarding to today, and kind of happy to talk about where, you know, kind of Gretel is today and what we're seeing today. But I'd say it's about 50-50. One corner we have as a value driver, safe sharing of synthetic data, where we can create data that has up to mathematically, you know, provable uh, privacy guarantees. And the other area where we're saying, hey, how do we improve on machine learning data sets? And this can be uh, tabular data for fraud detection, for ad recommendation systems. Uh, it can even be text data. And there's such cool kind of research coming out recently to support that where uh, essentially using an LLM to create additional like diverse examples, like it was mentioned in the, the um, Microsoft 5105 paper. Yeah, there's a lot of connections here. I mean, right off the bat, I'm just thinking curriculum learning. That's such a huge theme in my mind these days. You know, the, the ability to get smarter in terms of what data you feed into even the pre-training stage. And, you know, enhancing, filtering, enhancing, curating, boosting, you know, so many different manipulations there. Uh, but this one is probably one of the most intuitively obvious where, especially you think like rare diseases, you know, it's just not in there that much. And that makes it hard for the gradient descent to, to reinforce, you know, to reward the learning of it. So boost it up a little bit. And, um, you know, next thing you know, you're getting better performance. I mean, so many, so many opportunities like that. And that's kind of what was the light bulbs that were going off in my mind as just a, you know, application builder today too. Um, I was like, boy, I see just so many quick uh, patches in my future of, um, you know, rare, rare cases that I want to handle better. So I think that's super interesting. Just going back to the, the Amazon thing as well for a second. So basically this is, cause I, I do love to kind of also contrast recent history, you know, approaches you're scanning for important data. Does that mean you're like, like I imagine, you know, the sort of five years ago version of that was just a whole Swiss army knife of different explicit techniques, like regular expressions and like classifier, you know, kind of a handful of classifiers. What did that thing look like? And now today also I'm kind of like, maybe I'd use Claude Instant, uh, you know, and kind of clean out a lot of that old code. What do you think? Is that a reasonable intuition? Yeah, that's one of the reasons I am so immensely grateful for the LLM technologies and transformers that are out um, is that uh, there is a light at the tunnel for people doing traditional NLP and NER um, of a better, more general way to do it. Um, so really excited about that. But you're, you're exactly right. So going back to, uh, to Macy, 
Um, it used a combination of traditional like named entity recognition uh, technologies, as well as, as you were saying, regular expressions and things like that to help identify any type of personal data that might exist in the cloud and label it. So you knew where it was. And it would really take a look at it and say, is this exposed to the internet? Is this shared to outside organizations and things like that? And kind of give you the visibility that you needed across your organization. The real goal was to enable you know, uh, developers to make decisions about what tools to use and use the best available tools, but also give like the enterprise visibility necessary like for that to happen. You know, I think the big challenges we faced doing this at Amazon scale was we went from a startup that had, you know, a couple amazing customers to the first week that we launched Macy, we had 6,000 customers and we were doing uh, named entity recognition at, you know, up to petabyte scale. So, so much time focused on how you make that even traditional ML technologies kind of work at the scale. Part of the reason I'm so excited about technologies today is just the amount of specialization that was required or tuning anytime your data your data characteristics changed uh, that were required. And now it's really, as much as uh, all of us probably get annoyed with the need to prompt tune and do things like that, the promise of an LLM that can understand your kind of natural language question and, and make that change for you automatically is really, really cool. It's certainly a game changer in, in so many different respects. Coming back to the present and the, the synthetic data as it's kind of unfolding today, there are a number of use cases that you guys highlight in your your product and your demos. I'd love to hear you kind of talk through a few more beyond the boosting of the underrepresented set. One that jumped out to me and I think really highlights the challenge is insights, right? The idea that, you know, and I can just imagine I've, you know, done a lot of data analysis in my time, right? And it's like, okay, I certainly hear why, you know, at the corporate level, you don't want to be passing around the crown jewel data set, right? I mean, did some work with Rocket Mortgage for example, and, you know, the care with which they, you know, uh, maintain the, you know, their customer data access to it, all that stuff. Like, you know, it's, it's a serious, serious uh, effort. So you can't just be passing stuff around like crazy. Uh, that makes total sense. But then when you say, okay, well, and it's super creative, you know, concept, well, instead of, you know, having to deal with all that, you know, we'll just make uh, fake stuff and, you know, and use that instead. But insights. I was like, okay, boy, insights, you know, it's, I'm going to need some real theory to start to trust, you know, that you can make fake data that, you know, is enough like whatever, you know, and that's obviously something that probably most people are going to struggle to wrap their heads around. Well, how, how do you kind of define that, prove that, whatever, such that I can actually do my sort of pivot tables on this and trust that what I'm, you know, getting, you know, is making any sense. I've been thinking about that a lot and I'm really, um, I've got some guesses, but I'm really interested to hear, you know, more about the kind of you know, the provability of how this stuff works. Yeah, our approach, and I think the one that seems to be gathering a fair amount of steam in the synthetic data world is to train a model. And of course, we're like minimizing the loss function as we're training it <laughs> and doing the best we can. Um, but that doesn't tell you how the model is going to capture the real world distributions that you care about and the ability to replay it. So for us, like, regardless of the modality, if it's text, if it's tabular, if it's time series, it really starts with having the model kind of master um, the ability to recreate um, data matching the same distribution as the real world data was trained on. And if you can have confidence in that, you can start to alter the distribution for whatever your task is. Um, so how we do that, uh, we train the model at each iteration and really at the end, um, we sample a bunch of data from the model, um, about a one-to-one -one equivalent of the real world data. And then we essentially throw from a statistical perspective, throw the kitchen sink at it. Um, we have two ways of measuring, you know, one I would say is 
um, meant to be as objective as possible, and the other is meant to be kind of task specific. So we have something called our synthetic quality score. Um, what it's doing, it's easy to walk through from a tabular perspective. We actually have similar scores for text and, and time series as well. But we sample a bunch of data from the model. We look at pairwise correlations, and that creates part of a composite score. We look at the per field distribution. We even do like PCA distributions for each field and then do a distance metric between the real world data and the synthetic data. And the idea is to give you a one through 100 score that you can look at and you can reason about and say, if this is above 80, we expect it to work well for the types of machine learning use cases that most people use data, uh, synthetic data for. If it's below that, maybe that works for your use case. Maybe your use case is just testing or something like that. But as you were saying earlier, you don't want to create pivot tables on that. So really, we start with trying to give you that sense of confidence. We've added in the ability and really just after seeing a lot of customers do this to um, automatically test a downstream task for your data as well. So after the model's done training, um, we can run aggression or a classification task or things like that automatically within our platform. We have a lot of customers that use like Vertex or SageMaker or things like that to run this as well. So we just built it into the product. So you didn't, uh, not everyone had to write code. Um, but I think a mixture of that somewhat completely objective, not task specific score that is a good general indicator. And then also that like understanding of your task, like what you want to do with the data and making sure it conforms to those, those expectations feels like the way to get that sense of confidence you need. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. Yeah, interesting. So can we unpack the, the kind of loss function a little bit more? Because I'm kind of wondering about the relationship. That's all pretty quantitative stuff, right? It, it's, a, it's a code base, ultimately, a you know, sort of test suite that you can execute on any data set that comes through and sort of say, we're going to characterize what you gave us, and then we're going to characterize what we generated and kind of show you that that hopefully lines up, you know, distribution wise on the generation side. And it's important to probably keep in mind for folks because we're also used to one token at a time language models. I'm very much thinking of your latest kind of, you know, tab LLM that, um, that you demoed, but it, you know, it might be worth kind of distinguishing too, between that latest thing and the, you know, the sort of set of more purpose specific models that you have. But I'm kind of imagining for the main, for the, the new big one, it seems like there is a really natural and kind of an insightful thing here, maybe for people where there's like a decoupling of the prediction, which is the distribution and then like sampling from that distribution. I think this is something that people maybe don't conceptualize super rigorously, but like the, the task that you have sort of help, helps me, I think at least crystallize it a little bit. So like most people have a, a general sense, right? At the end of the language model, you're, putting a prediction onto every token. And, you know, then you can, with your temperature setting, you know, this is the, the experience that people are most familiar with if they're an AI engineer or whatever, you can turn that temperature down to zero and you can get like the most likely token or you can turn that temperature up and you can randomly select from those probability distributions. But in the kind of practical experience of it, we really only see one token and in the training also there is like a ground truth text document, you know, that is kind of firing one on the actual token and like zero on all the other tokens, right? So it strikes me that your situation is a bit different here where you can potentially define the target as the distribution and, and just like directly optimize and, and form the distribution of the predictions to the distribution that you've like characterized from the data. And then the sampling from that becomes like, a you can kind of understand it in, 
I mean, it's, it's the same fundamental thing, but the, the difference between that one token being right and the, we want to generate the actual distribution seems like uh, something that was really helpful for me to wrap my head around over the last couple of days. Yeah, yeah, that's a, probably a byproduct of starting working with tabular data, where that rather than um, looking at a, at a row being generated at time, we were using a variety of models when we started. We started with LSTM, um, we use GANs, we use diffusion models, and, and uh, now, as, as you mentioned, with our tabular LM model, we use uh, transformers. A byproduct of how we kind of built our, our product is we end up looking at um, the row level. So every time a row of data is generated, then we examine everything. Similar if you're generating a, um, a, a, a sequence of new um, LLM instructions, for example, right? Rather than looking at the per token, what we're going to look at is the, you know, per line or uh, per record distribution. Um, so essentially, we let the model generate everything. The first step during training is we're, we're sampling and we're looking at it, but also when you're using the model for inference. So when you're asking the model for data to come out, there is the risk that the model is going to hallucinate or invent something new that no one wants to have happen. So we have a secondary um, level of validation. We call them, not very creative, we call them validators. Uh, but essentially what it's doing is it's looking at all the outputs in the model and asking how different it is versus the original data that it was dropped, that trained on. And you have the ability to filter out things that are too far outside of the distribution. And the idea there with the tabular data was to make sure that we didn't invent anybody's you know, age that was 135 <laughs> inside of a data set. But it works really well for, uh, for uh, text data as well, you know, just when the, the model kind of goes off on a rant or invents something that's way outside of what it should be working with. You have the ability to filter that type of data out. And it helps you have more confidence in a generative model that it's going to give a, a usable response. Another kind of cool thing is that with so much of the focus for synthetic data really being on um, creating machine learning training sets, you can't have someone kind of looking at every record in a row and saying, yes, this is fine. This isn't, this is fine. Right. So we've really focused on making sure that when we generate data at a uh, thousand or a hundred thousand records, or even a million records that you have confidence, those records are kind of match your expectation. So I think that's another really kind of neat thing that I, you know, I see happening to, you know, go back six months ago. And there were so many questions about, I want to use this model, this LLM for uh, um, summarizing content on Reddit or things like that. Right. And that the risk was that it would summarize something that was off base and would be an inaccurate summarization. And I think technologies, you know, like what we built for text scoring, there's been a few um, open source metrics have been re uh, released recently, really help you quickly check and reason about a generative model's output in a way that would allow you to serve the results to customers without having to have necessarily like a human look at it. So a nice kind of quick AI check on data um, makes these models like so much more usable. How do you do the pre-training? I'm, you know, and, and how kind of big of a foundation model is this? Again, I'm, I'm so fascinated with the tab LLM. I'm kind of imagining that like you've gone out and just assembled every public data set you can and you know, in a sense, kind of taught a statistical world model to this thing. So it's supposed to have kind of all the right priors, basically, right? How do you go about creating and kind of validating that strong baseline? Yeah. So for uh, some background, uh, we are about to release for uh, listeners here, we're about to release a model. We're calling it Tab LLM. Uh, we're Tabular LLM. What it is, is a uh, um, agent planning and, and execution architecture um, built to help people work with tabular data using natural language queries. And really at the core of that is both the um, 
the agent that is, you know, making a decision about whether to use an LLM to generate data or whether it should use one of our tools and write code to generate data uh, to, to serve your response. And what we're referring to here is the actual like LLM model that we have uh, fine-tuned on data sets from across the internet. So it's one of the first examples that you'll see of an LLM that's meant to work with tabular data. Tabular data can be text, time series, numerical, categorical, any combination of those. The approach we took, and I think this will be a, a constant evolution from us, uh, the initial approach that we took was uh, exactly like you mentioned, Nathan, it was um, crawl the internet, um, specifically crawl GitHub, um, find any of accessible data sets there, um, Kaggle, things like that, anything with an open source license. Um, one area we were particularly lucky uh, with was that I was noticing a lot of times like machine learning papers will reference data sets actually in the readme. So there's really great data linked inside readmes there, and we could uh, pull down the license and really kind of understand if it was usable or not. But the idea was to train a uh, LLM that would be used for a data generation task on what good data looks like. And something interesting is that while we uh, we all kind of feel that um, LLMs today are trained, it's, it's mostly accurate on almost all of the content that are on the internet. If you're working with a, um, an OpenAI model or a Palm or a, even a Llama model. Um, but these models really aren't trained largely yet on tabular data. And um, tabular data also introduces some kind of interesting challenges um, in the sense that when you look at the, the context window that are available to LLMs today, you know, which is on a great LLM, let's say like 16,000, 16K tokens, it doesn't translate into a lot of um, rows in a typical uh, tabular data set, right? So 16,000 tokens, Assuming 50 tokens per row is going to give you about like 350 rows. So I think most of us who grasp, we work with data sets much bigger than that. So one of the things that we noticed as we started working with LLMs and asking them to generate tabular data, the power of asking an LLM to generate tabular data is one, they are um, just by a byproduct of how they work really good with time series type data. Um, there's been some cool research about that recently. Second, it allows you to apply like a global level of knowledge to your data set. So one thing that I think that's really resonated with um, our users on the platform is realizing that your data set is awesome. Everybody's data set is unique and really cool, but it's also like in some way limited, right? You don't have enough data. You never have enough of the examples. Nathan, you were mentioning kind of the long tail of data that you, you deal with and um, finding a more systematic way to work with it. So the idea of applying a model that has seen most of the data sets on the internet to that problem and saying, can you help me create some new kind of meaningful um, variations in the data to help a downstream model generalize is really powerful. So that's where we started. Um, in the initial model, we haven't done, um, for the tab LM model, we haven't done anything like super clever with how to um, encode or model numeric distributions. Rather, we, we just treat everything as text and it goes through there. Um, as I mentioned earlier, our first approach was crawl the internet and train it on everything. And I think very similar to other like research and academic work we see right now, I think a more curated, highly diverse set of high quality examples is the way to go. So we're seeing our team really kind of work on that. And some of the opportunities here is that, you know, even the GBT4s of the world, when they've seen tabular data sets, it's usually a, a table on Wikipedia or something like that. So it's a couple hundred rows at most. They just haven't, the LLMs have not learned that it's important sometimes that the relationships across the data set might be thousands of rows um, or hundreds of thousands of rows. So that's a real kind of neat application we're looking at right now is what if we train LLMs on a much larger context length and much more data 
how good of a job they do learning the like the kind of subtle insights and distributions of the data that will help improve um, ML generation when you're using the model. Yeah, I bet quite a bit. I'd love to hear a little bit more about the agent kind of structure because I'm imagining kind of you said, okay, you generate one row at a time. For one thing, like the order really kind of matters there. You know, I wonder if you if you have a sort of systematic approach to kind of reordering fields, because there's been some interesting research lately that like, you know, A implies B does not imply, you know, that B implies A from the language models perspective. And then I guess like there's sort of a kind of sequential probabilistic evaluation, you know, where you'd be saying, okay, if I'm one's kind of at least some amount of pre-training has been done, you know, if I were to give you like the zip code as the first field, then you would expect to see like reasonable demographics back just based on that zip code. But then you'd sort of have, you know, depending on the, you know, the first variable that you predicted, you would have like a very different sort of, you know, conditional distribution for subsequent very in all sorts of varying ways correlated um, variables. So you're kind of doing like a little Markov almost process um, randomly down the like Plinko board of, of possibility. And then, you know, going back and evaluating each, each token, you know, for its kind of conditional accuracy, right? Or conditional, like real representation. Is that conceptually right? Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. OmniKey uses generative AI to enable you to launch hundreds of thousands of ad iterations that actually work, customized across all platforms with a click of a button. I believe in OmniKey so much that I invested in it, and I recommend you use it too. Use Cogrev to get a 10% discount. One small modification I would make to that is that we have found the more data you sample from a Transformer LLM-based model for, uh, uh, for tabular data up to the level that the LLM is capable of working with. So let me give an example there. I'll start there first. Um, let's say you're working with uh, um, Llama 2 or you're working with OpenAI's like 16, 16K context window model, right? It might be capable of generating all that data, but if it's never learned that more than um, uh, a couple thousand tokens are relevant to a data set, you're going to start to uh, lose some efficiency as it generates more and more data. So what we do is we sample for from our model and our trained model um, up to as many tokens as we can at a time. And then we evaluate it row by row. And the uh, the purpose of the agent is realizing that with current LLM technologies, there's 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 a couple purposes of the agent. But the first one, the most obvious one, is that you know no LLM today can generate a hundred thousand or a million row data set, um, or can go in and edit your data set, which is a really popular use case for us right now. Right? If I want to add new fields, if I want to summarize product reviews, if I even want to just search for anomalies across my data. We've got to be able to process data way bigger than what an LLM can handle in a single batch. So the first purpose of the agent really is to take a complex user query, for example, um, you know, create a, um, a demo data set with a spike in sales activity in November, I want a million rows. Or if you're editing data, um, you know, convert this unit to, from Celsius to Fahrenheit across my entire data warehouse or things like that. The, the agent's first goal is interpreting that user query that's coming in and then figuring out how to divide it up into a set of smaller problems that the LM can work on one problem at a time. So uh, a good analogy there would be if you asked in the NLP world, if you asked GPT-4 to write a book for you, you would probably get a really short book and you want a novel that's got several hundred pages. If you were able to divide that up, take that problem, what someone's asking for, and divide it up into smaller problems, like write a paragraph or a chapter at a time, um, you could see how an agent 
planning and executed based architecture that would say, okay, first step, I need to write an introduction. Next step, I've got to have like character, um, you know, growth and start to work on the character arc. And finally, I need the conclusion and things like that. And it can divide those up into smaller problems. That's the approach we're taking with uh, the data set, either editing or data set creation, um, where we've got something that is breaking it down into a step-by-step problem that a smaller, you know, in this case, our data generation LLM um, can can work with and start generating data to uh, high quality data for that um, particular window. So is that like a, it's more of kind of a, an instruct type model that is creating kind of code as policy outputs and then a you know, a dedicated actual data point generation model that is kind of receiving those commands and doing the cell by cell. Exactly. That allows you to put language models in too, right? I mean, I saw one of the demos was like, you know, reviews of the product. And obviously that's a pretty different situation from the tabular data. I assume that's kind of a little more random somehow, or like, it seems like it would be kind of less, um, harder to give a, a representativeness guarantee on like customer reviews? We've got some um, some research, which I'll link over to you on on how we assess the quality of the, the text um, based on what you're looking for. But so often data sets are mixed. Like uh, imagine HR data where you've got doctor's notes mixed with initial observations from uh, patients as they come in. So I think that happens quite a bit. So we try to learn across all of them. And one of the kind of interesting things is that you don't necessarily want your LLM to do everything. And that's maybe the other part of the uh, the agent uh, planning-based architecture. If you are asking for uh, an incrementing ID or a Fahrenheit conversion, we've got a neat example. We're doing like a, a maybe a high school kind of like physics level problem. The LLM will approximate, but you don't want it to actually approximate your answers. You want the real answer. So the other part of, uh, I think, making synthetic data using this tabular LLM work at scale is having the LLM just recognize which areas are best to calculate or compute and doing that for you automatically. I think we all see that a little bit. If you're, uh, if you're experimenting with uh, GPT-4 or chat GPT and you ask it to you know, help you work on a data set, sometimes it'll give you a data set back. Sometimes it will give you back code that you could use to solve a problem. And really that's the type of stuff that we are trying to streamline. We're um, essentially applying the agent to realize when something should be a Fahrenheit to Celsius conversion, right? Just multiply by 0.6 and you get the right answer. You don't have to have an L and figure that out. So the first step is look at that user query, figure out, given the available tools that I have, can I solve this problem with code? If so, execute that code, get the uh, that into the data set so you have high, con- high confidence in the answer. But for other things that require that kind of like level of knowledge or intuition that an LM would have, you know, um, summarize this review as positive or negative you know, things like that, that, that require you to look across uh, fields and understand natural language text. And then we use the LM to fill in that data. It, it comes together very nicely. I think in the, in the product demo, I'm definitely excited to um, spend a little more time with it. I do think it'll be really helpful. And you know, it's probably a good idea also to just kind of contrast this as you started to do a little bit with trying to use GPT-4 or, you know, certainly any of the RLHF models. I think you have just like very fundamental problems here. And that's kind of where you know, even for a project like mine. So, you know, where I'm thinking of applying this immediately is, you know, we have the script writing model and its job is to write a video script for a given user who comes to us, you know, often naively and, you know, we kind of grab some content off their website or whatever and figure out who they are. So it's extremely, extremely diverse. 
Um, and you might say like extremely sparse, right? We have like a, you know, healthy usage, but we're not that big. It's a big world out there. So especially internationally now, different languages, you know, just kind of all sorts of long tail stuff that we have not previously put into our data set, but, you know, can at any time kind of come our way. And then I think like, okay, you know, if I want to do some patching of my fine tuned, you know, 3.5, which is my, you know, kind of currently the, you know, the state of the art best thing that can, you know, best nail our task, then like one is probably not quite enough, you know, to get it to, to really learn the, the pattern I wanted to learn five to 10 in my like broader mix of a few hundred samples probably is, but, you know, I kind of want to create something. First of all, I just, especially if it's an unfamiliar area, it's like very hard to even know what to do. Right. You show some examples where it's like France, you know, and I'm like, Oh God, I don't even know the fucking, excuse my language, excuse my French. I don't even know the like structure of the postal system in France, you know, let alone how to like make semi, you know, realistic examples that I would want, you know, to throw into 3.5 fine tuning. Um, so if I'm like making this up totally on my own, I'm, you know, just seem destined for underperformance for just kind of garbage in problems. And then, you know, if I, if I ask GPT-4, I'm just like, it's going to be so RLHF, you know, to mode collapse on things like this so often <laughs> that, you know, just like it answers, you know, 42 or whatever, you know, or 97, like way too many, you know, percentage of the time when you ask a random number, you know, here, I just like don't trust it at all for that sort of kind of representativeness. And, you know, I, I think over day I would, you know, readily agree that like, yeah, you should not use it for that. Uh, obviously, it's been trained for a very different purpose. So that to me is is exciting. I think gives you guys a real different like position in the market that you know is is so distinct from the kind of mainline AI assistants. I think that's that's pretty cool. The flip side of RLHF, which I think is so interesting, um, we've done some initial work that we published on using RLHF to reduce a model's kind of propensity to talk about stuff that it shouldn't like initially. So particularly like don't return PII and data and course the model, which is a big enterprise use case. But I think what you talked about also is like, sometimes you want that. Sometimes you need it. We have customers, for example, that are generating, you know, no joke here. They're generating spear phishing emails <laughs> to test their own uh, uh, spear phishing detection system. Right. So there are times that you need to go against what the model has been trained to do. And another interesting piece that came into mind when you're talking about RLHF. So I think like the enterprise use cases are a little different than consumer, where in some cases, like you need the ability to turn off some of the guardrails because you need to create a level of diversity or talk about things that a RLHF model probably just doesn't want to talk about. Um, big use case for us, uh, I'll give you another example, would be um, uh, healthcare companies, right, that are looking to create synthetic versions of patient medical records and a lot of um, models when you're trying to augment your examples will just refuse to do it <laughs> because they think you're talking about um, something that could be uh, potentially harmful, but it's really being used for a good use case. So I think there is definitely a case for uh, times where you want to you know, take off some of the, the guardrails or the set of expectations that organizations might have are just much different than what, um, or teams, developers might have are much different than what a, a consumer might have if they're using um, chat GPT or something like that. One that I think is so cool um, that really, you really start to notice with tabular data, big application. And it, it's the most basic thing that we would see with synthetic data, but people always start generating that mock data set they've had to generate for a demo or for their UI or something like that. And inside that data set, you're going to have names, you're going to have addresses and things like that. 
and uh, genders, things like that, a lot of protected class type stuff. And what you'll notice is the models have a, you know, a tendency to return like one type of data. So you've got names that seem very consistent. You have probably representative of the training set, um, you know, demographics that are across the United States or things like that. One cool application of RLHF that we've done and we've been experimenting with is actually training the model to be more diverse in the results that it gives back. So if I ask for uh, a set of uh, demographics for uh, a particular zip code or city or things like that, having the model want to return a more diverse and kind of aligned set of demographics than, uh, than, than I think um, than what a model might do off the shelf is pretty powerful. But you want the ability to be able to control that. Sometimes you want real data. Sometimes you want um, ethically aligned data. Those are both really important. Um, I think the irony of the whole thing is RLHF can be really good for both of them. It's just like what direction it's a tool, right? And it's kind of what direction you point the, uh, the algorithm and, and the, uh, the loss function it's solving. This goes back to my kind of decoupling of the distribution prediction and then the sampling from it. It seems like you could achieve that largely with just temperature. Like if you said, we're going to make our under, you know, the core model and it's, you know, logits or, you know, percentage weights outputs as true to real world data as we can, then you could slide your temperature slider from zero and be like, at zero, you get the modal prediction. And at, you know, one or whatever, you get the sort of normal, you know, re representative, you know, the real world distribution. And then at two, you get like the minorities overrepresented, you know, on, on any and all dimensions uh, version. But it sounds like you're approaching that in a different way. So is, is what I'm saying, like, not workable for some reason? And, you know, is there, why is there more complexity? Even a temperature distribution when you're editing it is going to, uh, when you turn it up relatively high and you start to get into even kind of crazy data for a really imbalanced data set, even then the temperature isn't going to introduce something that is like 1% of data very often, or at least to the level that you're wanting it to. So this is a technique we can use to, uh, to kind of uh, force that to happen. This kind of reinforcement learning is really a tool for saying, we really want you to be, you know, to create a more diverse representative data set. This is like the stock photography thing where it's like, we're going to be intentional about this. Um, but to do that, you have to, you know, apply even a more than a standard technique. I love their engineering blog at Pinterest. And they had a really neat example on how the search results, for example, if you're searching for pictures of wedding rings would bring back a picture of wedding ring with like very diverse skin colors or things like that, which I think is a nice feature to have. Once again, you don't always want that. Often what I, I found particularly in the, uh, machine learning or the, the, the kind of the tabular data space is that the classes are incredibly imbalanced. Let me give you another example, even for things at scale, right? So we work with a major social media company. They were impacted just like, you know, everybody else by the, the kind of changes to the uh, ad, third-party ad tracking and things like that. So really, you know, they are trying to make the best possible use out of their data that they have. Um, and when you look at the um, ad recommendation problem, it's massively imbalanced, right? For every thousand people that you present an ad to, maybe one or two click, right? Hopefully better than that, but uh, often that's, uh, I think, the, the kind of case that you're looking for. So you're trying to make the absolute most out of that data, but that data represents 0 0.01, something, you know, in that range. I'm, I'm making these numbers up, but it's meant to be illustrative, like, um, of the data. So you need the ability to tell the model, this is really important. I want to learn from these particular features, this very, you know, kind of, um, imbalanced class and then generate meaningful new variations to improve detection with this. And so that's where, you know, I'm coming from for like the different, very strong techniques outside of like altering temperature where you want very explicit control over the model output uh, to make sure it meets your expectation because you've got a task at hand. 
Well, control over models is definitely uh, something we should all be striving for. So in all uh, aspects of, uh, of AI, you know, definitely in the big picture kind of worries about, you know, are we going to keep this whole AI technology wave under control in any number of ways? I think this your situation here is one of the more compelling things I've ever heard also for, you know, the need for kind of the raw model, you know, that uh, that has the more accurate world model, even if it is, you know, sometimes not so pretty to look at. So I wonder how you, and I'm not like super bent out of shape about these issues, but I guess a lot of times I kind of view the model developer's ability to control things as kind of a canary in the coal mine. You know, like if they can't, you know, prevent it from like being offensive today, are they going to prevent it from, you know, following build a bioweapon command, you know, tomorrow is kind of the, you know, the most, um, Incredibly alarming uh, scenario, I think. But this is definitely, you know, I, I certainly see your point about like, hey, we want to have all these different dimensions of control. And we've got, you know, even just to build stuff to test our our detection systems, you know, we got to have data that's going to set off um, alarms, right? So that is, um, that is all super interesting. I wonder what role does like, you know, kind of conventional AI ethics have in, in the company given all these use cases that you want to enable. Have a very optimistic view of AI. And I think a lot of times I view synthetic data as a tool that could be used to improve like the uh, alignment or the ethics by someone that wanted to do it. I think to your point, it could also be used to do stuff that is, uh, that's harmful, right? So I think that's a real uh, question that we're gonna be you know, kind of wrestling with as a, uh, as a community um, over the next couple of years. I'm a, you know, a big fan of having the um, alignment checks and the warning flags everywhere, um, but to the extent possible, giving people control over, over what the model does. And, you know, generally speaking, I'm curious to hear your, your, uh, your opinion on this one as well, too. I think I'm a more of a fan of, of the, uh, like the open model where it can be kind of adapted for whatever particular use case that you might have um, versus moving to a more kind of closed space where a very small group of, of very powerful companies have control over, uh, what the models can and can't return. So, um, there is no, you know, perfect answer there, but I would say like, I, you know, I want to believe that people want to do the right thing. Um, AI is going, uh, advancing so incredibly fast that, you know, from what we're seeing, I think that, you know, for example, the white house executive order that came out this week is, it is a sign that people are paying attention to the right things. I'm also, you know, uh, maybe this is a byproduct of being one of the smaller companies out there. You know, we've got about 65 people at, at Gretel right now. You know, I'm curious to see how regulation will, will kind of play into this, this world um, where, you know, um, smaller companies that are innovating may not have 100 people on a regulatory or compliance team to, uh, to help work on this yet. So love the direction. Um, I think something really important that we do as we kind of move forward is like thinking about enabling competition and things like that and, and enabling innovation. Uh, while protecting um, people's privacy, while protecting the, um, the use of AI um, across our, our ecosystem. Yeah, no simple answers on all that. And the, um, you know, 100 plus page uh, order, you know, that seems to mostly be ordering another 10,000 plus pages of reports is um, certainly reflective of that. I mean, I also thought it was a you know, pretty good first step. And, you know, at the highest level, I've been kind of saying a lot lately that, as someone who does take kind of big picture AI risks pretty seriously, it's hard for me to imagine a much better situation for the kind of overall game board to be in today than the one we actually have. 
you know, at a minimum, we can say all the people at the big companies that are developing the most powerful systems are like pretty serious minded. And, you know, the most kind of rogue one is meta and, you know, they're still like, you know, more responsible than, you know, you could easily imagine uh, people being if they were just like, didn't care or thought the whole thing was totally ridiculous. So I think that's a, that's all a pretty good start. I like the flop thing pretty well. I mean, I, I'm imagining that you're like, you had said um, 500 billion tokens, right? As the pre-training base. So, I mean, if I, you know, if my Intel is correct, GPT-4 is 10 trillion tokens. So kind of 20 times as many tokens, however many more parameters. It feels like you probably have three orders of magnitude between kind of what your compute budget was for this and where the, even just the reporting threshold, you know, would kick in. So it seems like you have plenty of room to run as a small company before, you know, you would hit any, um, you know, any onerous regulation. And that's one of the neat things is, you know, I think that we we don't have to, and we're not trying to compete with GPT-4, you know, to create a tabular data model at that scale. Um, I think that the promise of, of, for other people that are building, um, you know, uh, AI powered applications right now, the promise of a really lightweight model, really fast model, you know, at Microsoft's textbooks are all you need paper using like a, a 1 billion parameter model that, you know, is super fast on inference, super low on training costs, trained on a, like a relatively diverse, but small set of examples, like shows the power um, that you can have of taking a, a domain specific data set you have or task and doing something meaningful without having to do something at the GPT-4 scale. So personally, like, so, you know, um, excited about that because I think it's going to enable innovation from the, um, you know, life sciences companies, from fintech companies, you know, you name it, AI video content creation companies, things like that, that can uh, um, create small, efficient, fast models that that do something really cool and really unique that the big models like haven't, you know, or can't do at the same, at same level. So personally excited about that. And then the combination of those two, like still leverage that big model where you need it is, you know, like we, we use it for uh, for the intent parsing, really understanding what type of query a user wants. Then we use our small model for for speed. I'm excited about that because I think it, it enables um, people to experiment without needing, as you were saying, like, you know, to train on, on uh, you know, 10 trillion tokens or something like just uh, so big that um, it, it, it becomes a barrier to entry. Yeah, I think if we give it a little time, you know, there are some really positive natural trends because and there you know there are some ways where kind of everybody's interests can be aligned I, i'm you know generally speaking the systems that worry me the most are the super general ones things that are designed and you know engineered for kind of narrow purpose seem inherently just you know a lot easier to keep under control because like you know alpha fold may be you know a, a world changer but you know up until at least this week, you know, I think it does a couple things now, but it previously did, you know, kind of one main thing and that's, you know, predictive protein structure and you got to fit that into a broader system. You know, lots of awesome examples like that, you know, alpha go can play go better than any human, but that's all it does. So I think that's all really good. And, you know, there is kind of a vision for long-term AI safety. That's kind of like the ecology of small models that I think Eric, Drexler was, you know, has, has a manuscript on this. He calls comprehensive AI services. That is like a good early um, articulation of it. Kind of pretty prescient actually, given, you know, it's like five years old, I think already. Um, And his idea is just that let's have 
narrow superhuman AI in everything. And then we don't necessarily need, you know, superhuman, superhuman general AI, which might be hard for us to control. So I, you know, but right now we're just like still figuring out all these techniques and how to make things work and like what the curriculum is supposed to be and you know, what the learning dynamics are. And the one thing that it kind of is working, um, you know, without question, I mean, a lot of things are working without question, but you know, it's so tempting in the meantime to be like, well, why don't we go, you know, what happens at 10 to the 27, 10 to the 28, 10 to the 29. Uh, and there I'm like, uh, you know, I actually would like to see us be a little bit more cautious before we, you know, just race through like however many more orders of magnitude. Um, Cause I have no idea, you know, really what comes out the other end of, you know, 10 to the 30 at this point, you know, all bets feel off. Does that feel safe to you? I mean, if, if somebody were to come today and be like, Hey, great news, everybody. Um, you know, all my H100s just uh, warmed up and um, we're, we're going 10 to the 30 right now. You know, we'll see in 100 days uh, with my 50,000 H100 cluster. It should take, you know, 100 or oh, probably a little more than that to go 10 to the 30. But, you know, whatever. <laughs> I don't think there's any way to stop someone from doing that. Well, you are working at like small city size electricity consumption at that point. So, I mean, that is the kind of thing that the state can currently intervene now there may be algorithmic breakthroughs in the future that make you know that sort of impossible to you know to stop but well getting a little bit meta here maybe uh just kind of talking to a little bit of theory it feels like these advancements we made have really been kind of like modeling how the human brain works and um that's neural networks right um at, at a go and at some point nature stopped saying we should have a bigger and bigger brain and started to say we're going to start like having parts of your brain that are specialized for certain things so that's where, like, I don't think there's anything we can do to stop someone from training uh, something on every, you know, token that can be found across the entire internet. But I actually think this idea of there is a quantity of smart enough um, where um, for general reasoning, you've got good stuff there. And then it's the, like the, the task specific, the code generation, you know, LLMs or the synthetic data generation LLMs or, um, you know, generation uh, for um alpha fold like what they're doing like that like a task specific model that is really great at what it does as a tool that's available to the others that both i think kind of helps us reason a little bit about more what's going on in a way we couldn't do if the model got bigger but i also kind of believe is actually probably a smarter and more efficient way to um to build out that agi so i would i would see like the you know personally see the future as Hopefully, <laughs> you know, because I, I like the idea of, of the auditability and the understandability of these small kind of expert models of, of, a, of a world where you've got a lot of mild, uh, models that are trained on small amounts of domain specific, really special data and then orchestrated by a larger, you know, smart enough LLM without creating the uber intelligence that no one understands how it works. Curious how, how you've, uh, you've thought about this as well. Yeah, I think largely... Similarly, with maybe just a little more tinge of fear in my, um, you know, in my affect, but yeah, you know, safety and narrowness, again, I think is super important. It would be, I see a case, you know, I, I guess to, if I were to, you know, try to summarize the case there, it would be like beyond a certain point, scaling isn't necessarily economical anymore because you're good enough, you know, to do a good job at tasks and, you know, that's kind of what needs to exist. There I do, now I kind of want to revise maybe my earlier statement on like being, um, you know, pumped about the state of the game board. Because I do think we look at some of the leading developers and it's like there isn't, in some of them, you know, one maybe in particular, there is a sort of borderline ideological 
you know, sense that like, we're going to keep scaling and we're going to make something like, that's like the most powerful thing we can make, you know, and we're going to try to do it safely, but like, we are going to make the most powerful thing we can make seems to be kind of a prevailing notion. And I'm like, that is the part that doesn't seem super wise to me. And it does seem like the kind of thing that the state can do at least something to control for a while. So I would, I would, again, like to see a little caution there, but I'm, it's funny. We, I just did an episode today with my um, uh, friend, the CEO of Lindy, and we were kind of running down all the places and ways in which we are both EAC, which are many, you know, and then there's like just this one little corner of the, you know, the world where we're like, yeah, maybe um, let's not rush to 10 to the 30, you know, not knowing what kind of alien pops out the other end of that. But I, I think this is, you know, I, I really appreciate your perspective. It is, it is so interesting. You have just such a, such a different kind of angle on so many of these kind of core fundamentals. I'd love to hear how that plays out for you in terms of your sense of understanding on the part of the language models. You know, you've got the stochastic paradigm, obviously, you've got the reasoning engine uh, characterization. What do you make of that, you know, as somebody who's kind of focused much more on the representativeness side of the challenge? Our um, number one focus as we've built out our service is um, and I think it's helped keep us um, kind of grounded is helping data scientists, developers with the problems they have with data today. Your data is messy. It has gaps in it. Um, I can't create new additional examples. It's too expensive or there's no way to go back to it. So we really focused our efforts on um, first and foremost, like helping you build better data. Um, that better data is either more accurate or it's more private uh, than, the, than the existing data. That's been the kind of the, the guiding light. That's what we're really um, aiming for um, out of the, out of the gate um, and learning as we go. One of the areas we're about to release a you know a very early version we've, <laughs> um, uh, of of our service and um, to see and really learn from users for what they're able to share and feedback with us for how they use it um, and use that to guide development. So instead of you know starting making a set of assumptions that prove it to be incorrect, I think one of the areas that we've been successful as a startup is like getting code out there really fast getting examples out there people can iterate with, asking for feedback and iterating on that feedback. So, I, you know, um, I'm super curious to see where um, this use of generative AI for working with, uh, you know, our big focus here is working with uh, tabular or mixed modality, tabular text and time series data goes. Um, we'll use that to drive our own investments on how much time do we spend working on a better agent, for example, so a better agent tooling. Um, if you wanted to create a, a time series or something like that at the scale of a million rows, right? Like how do you um, take in our knowledge around building time series that works and then combine it with the other technologies and where we see it being successful, that's where we're going to double down. One of the areas I feel is so kind of neat and de-risking in this space right now is there are so many potential tools you can bring to the problem, um, whether it's retrieval augmented generation. So bringing in example data sets into the, the element memory just to help it. Um, whether it's, um, you know, kind of the, the uh, React or the, the agent approaches for breaking things down into smaller problems and the LLM training itself. So we've got a bunch of different dials we can use to solve the problem. Um, we're hoping to learn from how people use the service and see which areas we really need to double down on. Um, but I'm psyched for that. I, I think it, um, in the sense that, you know, I really don't, I have some ideas on where it's going to go, but I don't really know where things are going to go. Um, but this, like, let me think about, tabular data as a resource and how much of the data we work with every day is like organizations is in some sort of tabular format 
it's pretty uh, unique space to be in, you know, I'd say most organizations, like 80, 85% of data in some level is in some sort of structured, semi-structured format. So being able to like work with that and leverage it is a kind of a niche, like, but really cool space to be, uh, to be playing in right now. Um, and, um, you know, to your point earlier, um, I'm sure it will be just a matter of time until we've got, uh, you know, competition from the, uh, the open AIs of the world, the anthropics of the world and things like that. But, uh, right now, um, you know, we've, we've, uh, got a great set of, of users we've been building on it. And I think this kind of combined approach across advancing LLMs to the point we need them to do without trying to build the Uber LLM. Um, and then, uh, and then also combining other, you know, cool technologies that are happening in our space to solve a problem. It's working out pretty well. Yeah, it kind of strikes me that there's maybe another, you know, Pareto curve between these two modalities. You know, I'm trying I'm trying to find a synthesis for the stochastic parrot reasoning engine debate. And in your architecture, I'm sort of seeing maybe they can be both, <laughs> you know. Um, you very much are training the core LLM here that generates the data to be like a stochastic parrot in a sort of, you know, highly principled way, but nevertheless, like you want that randomness, right? That that's kind of a big part of the value driver. And then you also need this like planner that has to be much more like reliable. And probably a lot of the models we use today are kind of at some sort of, you know, outer part of the curve on the production possibility frontier. But maybe there's like a bifurcation that happens there too, where like you're really pioneering the sort of high integrity stochastic parrot, you know, side. And then other people are like, you know, pu really pushing, pushing the reasoning side. That's such an interesting idea. Um, and it kind of uh, mimics, we went to a conference, there's a major uh, health organization called HL7 and they have a fire, uh, it's called fire. Uh, it's the most popular medical data record format in existence today. And they ran a whole conference on synthetic data. And the feedback we heard at that conference was the exact opposite of probably every customer conversation I've ever had, but it was so interesting. Um, in the synthetic data world for healthcare, there's a few projects. There's an open source project called MITRE, uh, from MITRE uh, called Cynthia that allows you to generate medical format record data that you can use for testing systems and things like that in the, uh, in the healthcare space. Um, it's been under development for like four or five years, purely statistical based approach. And what they called out was that for many of the use cases they want, particularly around AI or machine learning, that data from Cynthia is just too clean. <laughs> I had never heard in my entire like professional career up until this point. But what they were saying is like you do want a little bit of that variability. You want that um, you know slight um, variation um, that uh, stochasticity that gets introduced, but you don't want crazy, right? So it really is about kind of finding that balance, like just enough within the scope that you need. And then also thinking about it at scale, right? You can't evaluate these things one at a time. You need to be able to reason about 50,000 examples you create for an LLM training set or a million examples you create to boost a um, ad recommendation data set, something like that. So you really have to think about it at scale. And that's just been starting with tabular data where it's so easy to look at it and say, this is right or this is wrong, I think is, is uh, maybe had us thinking about this as a company a little bit earlier than the rest of the industry that is now like, wow, we can generate really amazing text or images for uh, that can be used to train a machine learning pipeline. But how do we know that all thousand images that I created are uh, kind of meet my expectations? So I personally really like this idea of letting an LLM be an LLM, like let a machine learning uh, a neural network generate whatever it wants to, um, but then examine the outputs at each step 
and build some, you know, uh, some controls that if it goes too far off the reservation, you turn the temperature up too high, something doesn't make sense anymore with real world data, you can detect it and kind of filter it out. That kind of recalls how in a lot of like image tasks, there's kind of training on systematic corruptions of the image as well. Like you want to make your stuff, you know, robust, you add a little noise here and you kind of, you know, distort this way and, you know, change aspect ratio. And if it can work across all those different things, then, you know, you're going to be much better off in a real world situation. And there's kind of a similar problem, I'm sure, for a lot of like medical things where, you know, stuff is whatever, anything from illegible to uh, incomplete to, you know, contradictory to, I just saw a funny story about like a person who had the same name and birth date, you know, in the same hospital as another person and like spent their whole life, you know, trying to be, uh, you know, disambiguated and like struggles. So yeah, I mean, it's just so, so many kind of crazy things out there. I know we don't have too much time left and I've really enjoyed kind of the digressions in this conversation. I did want to ask a little bit more about how you go about kind of training for privacy pr protection specifically. We've talked a lot about how you train for, you know, representation, you know, and super representation. But the, I understand there's like a, probably a whole different technique for just making sure that like you don't spit out somebody's real email address or whatever. That is interesting. You know, when I fine-tuned, one of the experiment I ran, maybe you can help me understand this a little bit better. This has been a topic of discussion lately too, is I ran an experiment on OpenAI fine-tuning with a bunch of my writing, you know, and kind of my resume, my data, whatever. And I was like, you, and I need to do it again with 3.5. This is a little while ago. But it was the 002 generation of fine-tuning, which they never launched publicly, but I had like an opportunity to test a version of it. And anyway, it kind of like sort of moved in my direction. It did not know who I was, though. It was, you know, I was like trying to turn up the epochs a bunch, you know, and it still like never learned that it was supposed to answer as like, I am Nathan Levens. It, you know, it was like Nathan something else sometimes. And, you know, it was kind of vaguely similar to me, but definitely not like memorizing those facts. So I'm very confused about kind of memorization in general. Jeremy Howard recently had a thing where it's like they, LLMs can memorize from one example. It definitely hasn't been my experience. So maybe for, you know, kind of background, like what do you observe about this sort of LLM memorization? You know, in my case, I was trying to get it to do it. You're trying to prevent it. But what is happening there? And then, you know, what's the technique that you're using to really make sure that it's not happening uh, for your product? Where we started was training um, language models from random weights on a, on a data set from a customer, right? In that sense, the model learns from the data that it sees, and it has a very high propensity uh, to memorize and replace secrets in data. There was a, uh, a um, great paper that came out, and this is like towards the beginning of our company in 2020, it came out from Cal Berkeley um, called... Uh, Oh, the secret share paper. Uh, Don Song's team um, and several others kind of working on it. And what they were um, highlighting was that, you know, given a training a language model on a data, like how quickly it starts to memorize even rare occurrences in the data and the chance it'll play it back. When you're training, a, it's an interesting example you gave where you're training, you know, GPT 3.5, um, uh, fine tuning it on an example, because um, I haven't seen kind of written up exactly how their, their fine tuning works. If it's actually, you know, updating all middleweights or if it's using a path to based approach or something like that, just adapting the model on top of it. But um, it gets a little harder to detect um, when you have this massive pre-trained corpus and you're making very small changes to only a percentage of the model weights, for example, um, across the entire uh, model. Um, but it still happens. One of the really Areas that we see, you know, customers doing a lot is fine tuning a model and then just running a, a series of tests, like uh, we call them canaries, um, but essentially trying to get a model to autocomplete a credit card number or things like that. 
Here's what I've seen work, um, starting with the removal of PII or personal data. It's the first thing. You can use an LM to do it. You can use uh, NER to do it, whatever you want to. The first step is really kind of removing the data you never want to have show up inside of your model. Um, the second risk, and this is the really the risk that trips trips people up, particularly like when you're um, working with uh, you know patient medical data or things like that, is that some combination of attributes, really easy to imagine in a tabular work you know, example, right? You might get rid of a name, but you have a, a height and you've got a zip code and you've got some sort of disease or something like that. And just that combination of attributes can very quickly become identifying. So none of them identify by themselves, put a few attributes together um, and you have a real problem from a privacy perspective. Same thing with text, you know, the types of styles that people have for writing and things like that, um, as well as the, the you know, data that you're training it on, that combination of attributes can become identifying. I suspect that the, uh, the OpenAI approach, as you trained on more and more data, would become more likely to, uh, to start to have things like that, where the combination of attributes, writing styles, anything like that can become identifying. Um, the answer to that across both tabular and text is actually um, the same type of approach works. There's an approach called uh, differential privacy. Everyone's heard of it. Uh, no one really seems to really know how it works and uh, always try to find a simpler and simpler way to, to uh, describe it. What differential privacy does uh, is it inserts a, a, a quantitative like level of noise into your data. And so, you know, when you're training a machine learning model, if you're training a, um, an LLM in this case, you're training with differentially private fine tuning, for example, um, it's inserting noise into the optimizer and clipping gradients on the way out. And what that's making sure is that like some rare combination of, you know, uh, words inside of your data, like, hey, my name's Alex, I'm six feet, I live in, you know, whatever, Southern California, something like that doesn't become memorized and replayed by the, the model. So essentially you can guarantee at either a um, um, training set example, right? So per example or per entity inside of the data, um, it could be a set of examples about an individual user. You can guarantee that um, none of the, um, the tokens inside of that data set will be replayed directly by the model. And that's so important when you are training on compliance control data. So we've got how many different customers we have going on with different like uh, healthcare organizations that are trying to train on uh, doctors' notes or uh, you know customer um, support records or things like that, where you need to make sure the model does not memorize a customer name or replay it or a combination of attributes there. So things like differential privacy give you a tool that you can say it's no longer that I think the model didn't memorize it and I haven't been able to extract it. You can actually say like with a level of confidence that given the way we look at an individual training example or record, I can guarantee you that the model will not uh, be able to replay that or will not have memorized to be able to replay that example. So in the tabular world, this has really opened the doors up for us. We've got a couple national level healthcare organizations that have been able to get approvals to share data between hospitals by training, not just on de-identified data, so not just removing names from patient medical records, uh, but in this case, creating a synthetic version of those patient medical records um, where you know that the model did not memorize my combination of zip code and height and gender or things like that that could become identifying. Um, with those kind of like actual mathematical guarantees, it becomes possible. So super excited about differentially private fine tuning, um, particularly in the, um, the LLM space. When you look at small companies that are trying to train those models on their domain specific data, but they hit compliance or privacy issues, it gives you a tool that it's not just a best guess, or we think that it's going to be fine. You can actually convince yourself that the model is not going to return something that it shouldn't. As you do the training, you've taken the 
gradients and you're working your way through back propagation, you are literally adding a noise factor to the updates to the weights. Mm -hmm. For each, each subsequent token generation. And that basically allows you to say, we've kind of essentially blurred the picture in aggregate. There's probably, I guess, like a, a trade-off there where you probably convert the model converges more slowly, I guess it by almost by definition, but without learning the stuff. Yeah. That's such an interesting thing because, um, research has been coming out recently. We had a, uh, a conference we ran on synthetic data and we had, uh, some folks from Google come in and, and talk about some of the research they're doing. And that's exactly right. When you're introducing a little level of noise into the data, um, it requires more training time to get down to the same, um, level of accuracy. One of the things that's really interesting with this approach is that, and this, this increases compute requirements, but there's a theory that by really increasing the batch size bigger and bigger and bigger that you're sending into the model at any given point. So it's going to increase your computational complexity here. Um, but you can use differentially private techniques with increasing larger batch sizes um, and approach the same level of accuracy um, as real world data. So in this sense, you're kind of getting privacy without real a uh, real hit on on uh, on on utility of the data but essentially um by more compute budget and more data it becomes possible to reach the same level of accuracy that you would if you just trained on on the data itself which is pretty exciting so that's pretty new um from what we've seen using gretel today like you're going to have uh, a utility hit using um uh, differential privacy especially on small data sets it makes a lot more sense when you get into a data set where you've got you know 100,000 or more examples essentially the level of noise it has to in inter introduce to uh, blur out, you know, somebody of a particular zip code is a lot lower. Um, that's why you've seen differential privacy, for example, the U S census bureau uses it. Um, Google and Apple use it on the next keyword prediction or emoji prediction. When you're typing a text, uh, at that scale, then differential privacy really starts to work. But I, I am personally really excited about this, like public, you know, LLMs trained on public data, you're fine tuning it on a private data set and you're introducing differential privacy as you do that. Large batch sizes, plus like being able to interleave public examples will help uh, a model converge really quickly. And I think in a lot of cases, and we got into the weeds there a little bit, but it is like um, the key to unlocking, you know, AI for uh, regulated industries that are gonna have to convince a regulator that there's no way that this patient who is part of this data set their identities can be compromised, right? Like, I always love this term, like you want the model to learn about a disease, but not about a patient. This is a really great technique to make sure that that uh, you have that separation. That's cool. It's a, it really, I've, I've learned a lot by uh, going down this rabbit hole. So uh, always uh, excited for a journey into the weeds. One last thing I wanted to just get your take on a little bit is there's obviously a ton of activity going on in synthetic data, right? And I would kind of flag Anthropic's constitutional AI is kind of an interesting version of this, where they're constantly, you know, iterating on this HHH basis to make things more helpful and honest and um, harmless. And then, you know, and so that seems to work. Like, it, you know, cause is really good. So that's great. And then you see the, I think you even mentioned earlier, the, um, you know, synthetic textbooks project out of Microsoft, which also seems to be like great proof point for the value of synthetic data. Then you see these kind of weird stories like self-consuming generative models go mad, which I think most people, you know, if they listen to this show, they probably at least saw that, you know, blurb whenever it came out of, not too long ago. And there they sort of say, 
you know, if you do this like generation after generation, things get weird. Is, do you think there's anything inherently about synthetic data that is kind of a long-term problem? Or do you think that this is all just these kind of weirdnesses are just reflections of, you know, not having figured out some of the details yet? I'm pretty strongly in the not in the details category. <laughs> I could have I could have guessed that. I've also heard another like uh, kind of a story that I've heard as well is like, well, if, you know, GPT-4 and um, Anthropic and other LLMs are like creating so much content on the internet, is the next cycle of LLMs, you know, going to have a regression because it's just operating on, you know, uh, data that's already created from previous uh, generation LLMs? I think that's an interesting question. We're going to see how that kind of plays out over time. But I would maybe posit that in a lot of cases, LLMs uh, for where we are today can generate and often do generate, which is why we do it, like a higher quality version of the data that that was fed than it originally started with. Um, I think so many people use this today. We use Grammarly to improve our, our text. Um, sometimes we run uh, an email through through uh, through an LLM and kind of ask it to help us make some improvements or things like that. So I think the signal inside of there, and that's kind of what came out of that textbooks are all you need paper, is a very promising thing. I don't think this is fully understood yet, but the idea that synthetic data can be kind of a, um, a cleaner, more diverse version of you know the limited data you might be starting with is a really powerful idea that I think we're gonna we're gonna see from. So I'm I'm optimistic that. These these models and uh, yeah, I would say that maybe the the mad example is just an example of um, an opportunity to configure things or kind of work with them better. That um, we aren't moving towards some sort of mode collapse or anything like that with uh, with synthetic data feeding synthetic data, as long as the data that we're generating is is high quality and ideally improving on the data that you have. Then I think we'll be in a good spot. That's going to be playing out. So I'm really curious to see how that works out. Yeah, the dynamics uh, certainly of the future of the internet and um you know, a changing mix of content being published there is definitely going to be another just fascinating society scale story. So anything else that you wanted to touch on that we didn't get to? Uh, no, I think it's been an awesome conversation. I was just kind of laughing about the the last topic. And, and uh, you know, as long as like every LM generation doesn't start with, you know, I'm a helpful AI assistant, like, how can I help you? Or let me explain this for you. Um, the things that we see coming out of LMs all, all the time, I think that we'll be uh, we'll move, moving in the right direction. So definitely enjoy the conversation today. And thanks for inviting me on. Alex Watson, founder and chief product officer at Gretel AI. Thank you for being part of the Cognitive Revolution. It is both energizing and enlightening to hear why people listen and learn what they value about the show. So please don't hesitate to reach out via email at tcr at turpentine.co or you can DM me on the social media platform of your choice.